Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for hum a human master. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. What I love about that short video is the one line that is repeated several times, I'm just a florist. How many of us have had that same thought about the jobs that we have? Uh, I'm just a florist, I'm just a construction worker, I'm just an electrician, I'm just a banker or something else. Oh, God can never use me. And when we think that way, which is fairly normal and typical, we may lose sight of something that God has intended all along. Being a florist who excels with her service and who cares about the people around her, well, that changes everything. This morning's topic is my identity at work, and it's the sixth part in this series that we've been walking through that we're calling Living the Gospel. And this is a relevant topic for most everyone here because work is a major priority in our lives. We all work. Some of us work at jobs where we contribute sweat and skills toward a shared effort for which we receive a paycheck in return. That in turn helps us feed our families and pays for the energy and for the roof over your head. Others here no longer work for a paycheck, but we still work. I have found that some of our retired folks are the busiest people in the world. Everybody wants them. Everybody assumes you have more time than everybody else. Volunteering for community projects, serving on a board at the Senior Living Center where you live, or taking a turn uh, in a meaningful ministry project here at North River, you work. If you're a high schooler, you work too. Your job right now is to be a student and to be the best that you can be. Your job is to learn and to grow and to begin to find ways to process those ideas into principles that will be channeled in terms of directing the rest of your life. While we're going to talk about this topic, my identity at work, I have to tell you that there's something else that is even more interesting that is in play behind the scenes whenever we talk about this concept or we read this passage from Colossians 3. It is about the subversive plan of God through your work. God really has a brilliant subversive plan that he has in mind. And he stuck you where you are and he gave you the types of skills that you have and the types of abilities that you have because he wants to increase your influence and he wants to use you in the most amazing places. So the simple word for today's message is work. And this word prompts two questions. How does your work intersect with your faith? And how does your work intersect with your identity as a Christian? We're going to chase this big idea this morning. Workers and the work itself are transformed when our work is done as unto the Lord. That last phrase is so critical, as unto the Lord. We're going to look at four ways to transform the workplace no matter where you work and no matter what you specifically do. Here's the first way. Work with all your heart. So Paul writes here in verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. The first important phrase here is at the beginning of the sentence. Whatever you do. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying this means you, this means me, this means all of us. 
absolutely no one in the room today gets a free pass on this one. Whatever you do, he says, that's about as broad as you can get, isn't it? It encompasses all of the work that we have ever done, all of the work that we will ever do. The second key phrase that Paul enlists here is this, work at it with all your heart. Notice the bodily contribution that is spoken of and expected here. He says, do this with all your heart. Now, he could have chosen other words, other thoughts in order to modify this. He could have written, with all your back. In other words, put all of your physical effort into it. Uh, put your back into it. Give it more. You don't have to smile or feel good about it. Just make sure you put your back into it. Isn't that the way that many of us were taught to think about work? Work is hard. You're not supposed to enjoy it. I, I remember a friend of mine who was wrestling with his dad over what his career vocation would be. And his dad looked at him and said, what are you, nuts? You keep trying to find something that you're really going to enjoy. You're not supposed to enjoy work. You're just supposed to work. A difference in generations in the way that we were trained. Instead, Paul here says, put your heart into it. Work at it with all your heart. What happens when you work at something with all your heart? I don't know if you've noticed, but something changes when we go at our work, our efforts, our employment with that kind of attitude. When your heart is into it, you can't fake your way through something. When your heart is really into something, you care about the quality of the work. When your heart is into something, you care about the business that is tied to your work and the reputation of that work. When your heart is into something, you end up giving your best. Your effort is better than the work of the average worker in that place. And you begin to get noticed. You begin to shine. And on your best days, you excel far above what others do in that place. So Paul says, whatever you do, wherever it takes you, wherever you find yourself, work at it with all your heart. Here's the second way we transform the workplace. Turn your work into worship. Go back to my friend's experience with his dad. His dad never, ever would have thought of this concept, that work could not only be enjoyable, but work could actually become worship. That's what the Bible is telling us here. And so we tease that verse out a little bit further. All of verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This is where we see the subversive plan of God articulated by the Apostle Paul. His instruction is for us to work as if you are working for the Lord, not for your boss. This means that even the worst day at work can become filled with acts of worship. Every time we humble ourselves and say, God, this isn't fun. God, this isn't going the way that I thought it was. Lord, this is an awful place to work. Lord, I have the most ridiculous boss on the face of the earth. We have the ability to transform that moment by saying, okay, I've agreed to do this. I will do this for the rest of the day as if I am working for you. Everyone else in that office or business may be working primarily for the boss or primarily for the paycheck. But you have the opportunity to take your work to a higher level by offering your best to God. 
This is God's plan for dealing with difficult people in the workplace. This does not mean that you should forfeit the right to exercise your freedom to leave a bad job. There are times when that is absolutely the right thing to do and sleep better at night because of it. This does not mean that you allow your boss to force you to do something that is either illegal, immoral, or unethical. If you think this is too hard, remember this. Paul wrote these words originally to a church that included people who were slaves and who had no choice about who they would work for or what they would do. Their freedom did not belong to them at all. This combination of working with all your heart and working for the Lord is also the foundation for a theology of excellence through your work. Paul's idea is that when we know we are working for the Lord, we will give him our best. And so he pictures us imagining that the Lord himself is watching over us and that he sees everything that we do and that he's going to give us an evaluation card at the end of the day. Imagine if, if the Lord God were right here, what would we do for him and how would we do it? This concept is true with roles for which we are compensated and it is also true when we volunteer. Excellence in every effort honors God and it inspires other people. So you might wonder, how do we do this? Sometimes all it takes is a simple prayer. Lord, everything I do today is more for you than for them. Lord, let me offer my best today as an offering to praise you. Lord, this is going to be a hard day to get through. Let me work in your strength and for your glory. Here's the third challenge that he gives. Remember your inheritance. Verse 24 then picks up this thought and it says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, I have a question for you. When you woke up this morning, in your mind, were you aware that you are a person with an inheritance? I know most people were checking the newspaper and they were checking the news the other night to see if, if they won the lottery because it got up close to a billion dollars. And probably more of us bought a ticket for the mass millions this week than thought that we have an inheritance from God. What do we call people who look forward to enjoying an inheritance? Heirs, that's right, heirs. So that means that if you are a believer in Christ, you are an heir. And we rarely talk about that concept. We rarely think about that concept. Uh, look at the person around you. You are sitting next to heirs. There are heirs all throughout this room. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. There he says, In his great mercy, he, God, has given us new birth into a living hope. And then just a few, a few words later he says, And also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. So there, Peter picks up on this same word that Paul used, and he twice asserts that we have an inheritance. An inheritance, first of all, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And also, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And God is watching over it. It is more secure than your bank account right now. So between Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told three times 
that Christians have an inheritance. This inheritance comes directly from the Lord as your reward for serving him now. I don't know what it will be. I don't know what my inheritance will be. I don't know what your inheritance will be. It's like most of our inheritance, if you ever get one from somebody who dies at the end, it's, it's written in the will, but you don't get to read the will until that person has died, and all of that is unveiled. And until the unfolding of the final stage of God's plan, we won't know. But isn't that a great thought? You're an heir, and there's an inheritance. It's kind of a mystery inheritance because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how big it is. You don't know how large it is. But you're an heir nonetheless if you are in Christ. This inheritance flows from the Christian's new birth. That's the phrase that Peter uses. So we need to explain that. Perhaps there are some in the room that won't understand what's being talked about here in the Bible as the new birth. That new birth term is another way of describing a spiritual rebirth that comes from God's Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Your spiritual start as a Christian begins with this new birth experience. You are not only born anew spiritually, which is an internal kind of thing that doesn't make any external, uh, doesn't give us any external evidence necessarily, but it changes our status. You are adopted into God's very own family as his child. Question. Have you had this spiritual rebirth experience yet? What we were signifying this morning with a faith baptism is we're, we're talking about people and celebrating with people who've had that experience. And they're celebrating the old and giving way of the old and, and branching into the new. And so there's a picturing of an old life and a new life that is rising up in the power of God. This Spiritual rebirth comes when we renounce our sinful patterns and we transfer our trust to Jesus as God's solution to our sin and rebellion problem. This is what John Newton was talking about in his amazing old hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now am found, was blind, but now I see. Those are before and after terms talking about somebody who's had a spiritual change that has happened inwardly. John Newton had been the captain of a slave ship, and he was tormented and racked by guilt over that scenario. He didn't know how to get out of it all. And his spiritual rebirth took place when he cried out to God in the midst of a storm on that ship, telling him that he would renounce his ways and that he would follow him from that point on. Newton eventually became a pastor, and, and later on he, he left some lyrics to hymns that he'd been thinking through. And, and one of them was the, the lyrics to this particular song that was later on put to the music that you and I have come to love and is associated with that song. Your spiritual rebirth doesn't have to be quite as dramatic as that. You don't have to be racked with, with guilt. You don't have to be a captain of a slave ship. It doesn't have to happen in the middle of a, a raging storm, although sometimes it takes a raging storm in the midst of your life to bring you to the point that you need the power of God in your life in a whole new way. It can start right here. It can start right now. 
It starts when you quietly say a prayer to God that is something like this. Lord, I am lost in my sins because I cannot remove them. Please give me the freedom and grace of your forgiveness. I am putting my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior and as your solution to my problem. Make me new on the inside. I will follow your word from this day forward as best I can. And if you, pray, if you pray a prayer, something like that, that has two parts to it, that we're moving away from the old paths that are not following God's ways, and we're moving into following Jesus by faith, God brings his spirit into your life in a new way, and he gives you this spiritual rebirth, this whole new start. Every person who is spiritually reborn as a follower of Jesus is then adopted by God into his family. You become a child of God. And every child of God has an inheritance. There's a logic to what the Bible is explaining here for us. This inheritance is not like an inheritance in this world, where you can be tricked, where the will can be changed, where somehow somebody can come in and steal it. But you have these words that Peter wrote about it. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. That concept of perishing, spoiling, and fading brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And you are shielded by God's grace here in this life. How good is this transaction? Well, this week, thousands and thousands of people will line up for a shot at this week's Mass Millions Lottery. How many have already done that? I have. I bought two. I thought I'll make a contribution to the winner. And that's literally what I said. And just in case, I thought, you know, Lord, uh, I'll even pay off the church's mortgage if I win that. <laughs> that would be fun to do that. Now, you know and I know that that's entertainment when we do that, right? That's it. Because our chance of winning that is so incredibly small. It's like throwing away money, to tell you the truth. It's like spending it on candy. CBS News stated this week that the odds of winning $999 million, that's the figure that they use, are one in 88 quadrillion. <laughs> now, just to get to wrap your head around the chances of you going out and spending, you know, $2 on one ticket for that, one in 88 quadrillion is the numeral one followed by 15 zeros. So you have one of those chances. And you don't increase your odds if you buy 100 more. You just get 100 of those 1 in 88 quadrillion chances. <laughs> I didn't hear all that, but I have a feeling it was funny. One cartoonist added this thought. Uh, do we have that? Can we show that, that one? No, that's, that's okay. Maybe it didn't come through. 
There, there was one that I sent that had a, a cartoon on it. Of earthly treasures, the cartoon, I'll describe it for you, it was two waiting lines. One was the waiting line in the lottery that just kept going on and on and on. And the other one next to it was uh, a little sign over the top that said tithing, and there was one person in line. <laughs> and that, that's the way our world thinks about all of this kind of stuff. But let me ask you this. We have the option to say, I will put all of my hopes in the get-rich-quick schemes that are popular within our culture, that are part of our entertainment. Only cost you two bucks. But it's a one in 88 quadrillion chance. And you have the promise of God that says that you have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept there by him, and the same power that shields your life is the power that watches over that. Which one is a better deal? Our culture needs to hear that. This is an amazing deal that God offers. Here's the fourth way to transform your workplace. See yourself as an employee for Jesus. And so he closes out verse 24 by saying, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. He states that not as an option, but actually as an assertion. In reality, if we belong to him, if our lives are wrapped up in Christ, if we are serving him, it means that no matter what attitude we bring, we are really serving him because all the talent comes from him, all the opportunity comes from him, all the time comes from him, the world itself comes from him, everything that we use comes from him, so we might as well see ourselves as employees of Jesus. For the Christian, this is our identity at work. Whether anyone else knows about your faith or not, you will know. It is possible for us to be serving Jesus daily no matter what we do, and no matter where we work, and no matter what anybody else understands or thinks. We also find that there's a healthy balance when we give our work to the Lord because the Lord values rest. And so God put rest right there in the midst of the Ten Commandments. He put it there into the work week of the very first group of people to whom he began to communicate. Work isn't everything, although work is important. So in, in this world that never seems to stop, where work follows us home, the Lord reminds us that he also designed rest. Jesus says, I will give you rest when you're weary. And he wants us to find that balance. And we see this balance in Jesus. He took on the greatest assignment of all time, and yet he regularly got away to be alone with God, to pray, and to rest, even when everybody around him was clamoring for his attention. Jesus, where are you? We were looking for you. Everybody in the city is here waiting for you. Why on earth would you be alone on the mountain with God? And he modeled this incredible sense of balance, of knowing when he needed to break away from all of that in order to draw near to God, in order to draw more energy into his life and to find that balance. God will honor you as you wrestle with that balance. Your earthly employer may not care about that balance in your life, but God does. 
This week, as uh, some of us are walking through our small group experiences, and we're working through Tim Keller's book, Gospel and Life, this week he presents three concepts for our small groups to wrestle with that are related to this concept of work. The first is the idea that God changes our motivation for work. The second is that the gospel changes our ethics for work. And the third is that God changes our conception of our work. And the point that links all of them is when we do it for him, when we offer it to him, everything changes. Everything changes when we offer our work to the Lord. So here's the main idea that we've been talking about, summarized in one sentence. Workers and the work itself are transformed. No matter what anyone else thinks, when our work is done is unto the Lord. We offer this not as uh, one more uh, guilt-laden task to throw on your backs, but rather as an opportunity to think through how do we live out our faith in the workplace? And how can even the most difficult, demeaning job that is represented by the people in this room, how can that become a point of worship? When you and I follow these simple instructions that Paul lays out here, we have the ability to transform the workplace even though nobody else is aware of what God is doing. This is the subversive plan of God to use you in ways that other people are not even aware of. And sometimes they will notice and they will ask why. And that's when the real conversation begins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have in this life to test out principles of Scripture in the midst of our lives. This week, as we test out these principles in the midst of our working world, we pray that you'll grant us focus. We pray that you will, will grant us the, the ability to see you clearly and to offer to you our time, our talents, our skills, our abilities, our schedules, our tensions. And Lord, we will try to work this out in the midst of that tension of knowing that there are people that we report to and people who have expectations of us and knowing that we can supersede all of that when we take it to a higher level by also or more so working for you. Lord, hear the person who may be saying, I'm new to all of this, Lord. I never thought of bringing you into my workplace. Help me as I take baby steps this week. And Lord, we ask that in the midst of employing these simple principles, that you will meet us in the workplace and that you will shine a light on your people. Keep us pressing forward to the day when the inheritance that you give is unveiled, whatever that may be like. Thank you that your promises are more trustworthy than the promises of this world. And so we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let me call on our ushers this morning, and um, we will receive our, our offerings. Thank you for doing this with excellence as well, and for doing it cheerfully, and for wanting to invest in the things that God is at work in in this world.
We have one more song that relates to this whole idea of being a child of God. I know who I am. Mm -hmm. 